so I read this, or no, I was in the car the other day and I heard this thing on the radio about how our brains change throughout our lives. <laughs> and it turns out women have like five major changes. Men have like three. But we like, every time our hormones go berserk, our brains completely reform themselves. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. It, it's, and yeah. It's, 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 a, it's very interesting. All of that stuff is so fascinating like all of the chemicals that run our bodies yeah like what i read this really um interesting article um about about going into menopause because i'm i've just a lot i thought i'd skipped a whole period but it arrived today like three weeks late which never happens in my whole life never been late my whole life looking at my moon calendar up there yeah and so I thought, oh, okay, I've officially hit the the big M. Things are happening, things are changing, and I've had all these, like, supercharged, oh, I'm on fire, this is weird kind of moments. But I remember reading this article uh, talking about how society labels women who, like older women who go into menopause crazy or grumpy or, you know, Mm-hmm. however they label them and it's not for any like they're still the same person it's just that when you are a mother when you're in those years where you could potentially be a mother you're drugged to the eyeballs on hormones that make it possible for you to tolerate small human children without throwing them out the window and so it doesn't just apply to the small humans in your life it applies to everyone in your life so you are you know because yeah. you because you're high basically <laughs> we're completely stoned on oxytocin yeah exactly <laughs> well i was somebody pointed out to me recently that all of those times in our lives when people say that women are our, our craziest and our meanest it is when we are at our lowest estrogen and our highest testosterone so in other words we are our craziest when we are the most like men Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly what you've just said. Exactly what you've just said. And we are least likely to put up with your bullshit, basically. Yes. <laughs> and well, I tend not to be like one of those like biological determinists. I also like I have a hormone disorder that makes my testosterone naturally higher yeah. than an average woman. And I've spent my whole life being too much and, uh-huh. you know, rash and bitchy and. But it's not, it's not, uh, it's not a gender thing. It's not a, it's not a male, female f- thing. It's a chemical thing. It's a hormone thing. It's a what's going on in your body thing. It doesn't matter what looks like on the outside or what looks like in your thoughts. Yeah. Or your emotion, you know, somewhat in your emotions, because you know the chemicals kind of run those quite a lot. Yes. <laughs> As a person who who lives better living through chemistry, I firmly believe that emotions are tied up in chemicals more than we're willing to admit. So what was what's that you just mentioned? Live- so I take antidepressants. I call okay. it better living through chemistry. Well, I could. Well, I had a um, when I had my meltdown in my sort of mid thirties, I guess, late, no, it was early thirties probably. I had a total meltdown because I was working too much, working till like 11, 12, 1am and still trying to function at home with children and husband and just not coping. And I started crying at work one day, couldn't stop, couldn't stop, locked myself in the bathroom. I had to be rescued you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, basically took myself straight to the doctor. And she said, look, there's no question. You need to create space in your, in your head for anything at all. You, you, so this is what you take, the serotonin stabilizers or whatever, until, mm-hmm. you know, this creates enough space for you to do anything else. Yes. I didn't have space to do the work till I had help from, yeah, the medicine to make the space. So I, I'm the person who stands from the rooftops and says, if you need it, take it. It doesn't hurt me. 
you need to do what you need to do so your brain works the way that feels best. Yeah, and I'm the person who'll stand right next to you on the rooftops and go, you can't live this life wrong, darlings. It's yours. <laughs> yes. Oh, thanks for coming on the show. This is excellent. I'm so it's a really casual conversation. Wherever it goes is wherever it goes. Hey, everybody, I'm Sandra Turnbull. I'm from the Goddess Kindled Universe, and I'm a spiritual director and meditation guide and author of Magical Realism and, you know, other stuff. But, you know, that's a few of the things that I do. And I'm here today with Jessica. What's your last name, Jessica? More Lucas. It's not an easy one to remember. Sorry. It's not written in front of me and I'll just <laughs> puff out of my head. So Jessica uh, is one of our listeners on Belgarian and Beyond and she's kindly agreed to come on and um, have a conversation with me about, you know, the books we love, the stories we love and how magical realism threads through our lives from those fictional worlds. So heads up, that's the conversation we're having. <laughs> So, Jessica, please introduce yourself. So, I live, I'm Jessica Moore Lucas. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm on about my third career as a, I don't even know how to describe what I do. It was really easy when I was a college professor to say, I'm a historical musicologist. This is an easy thing to explain to people. That's what I do. But now I am, I, I do, organizing work for spiritual communities, mostly liberal churches. So right now I'm employed by a small liberal Methodist church. So, um, and basically I help them, I've helped them make the move online during COVID and all of that. And I'm trying to, when I'm not doing that, I'm a writer and I'm trying to put together a sort of memoir of how I got here and mm -hmm. why it's why community is important and why organizing it around our spiritual spiritual values makes sense beautiful oh beautiful so oh okay oh you sound like one of those people that i could just have conversations with for hours <laughs> and as far as i'm concerned i look at most spirituality as a rocket to the moon we got to get to the moon. The mechanics of it is what works for the people making the trip. Precisely. Precisely. Um, and that, I think that is the marked difference between spirituality and religion. Yeah. And I don't know that everybody has that vocabulary. I think maybe no. I've spent so much of my life, like, inhabiting other realities. Mm-hmm that it's easier for me to pull, pick that apart as opposed to people who've been raised in a certain system and a certain culture and understand that the only way to get to that moon is, you know, through Jesus or through whatever it is. So what was the, um, why did you need to morph into different realities? Did you feel like you had to? Was it... Uh... For what purpose? So I was a really awkward, weird kid. Um, <laughs> I love us. Everyone I've talked to is like, yep, yeah, hello, got the t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Um, yeah, I was a weird, awkward kid and I didn't have a lot of friends. And I loved to read, but that was the only part of school I was any good at until I was about 15 when I started playing the double bass and oh, I was about 12 when I started playing the bass and I got pretty good at that which made me want to be better at the rest of school so I could go to college for it yeah, yeah. but I was not I just I never fit in I never had a ton of friends eventually I got to a place where I made a like core group of people who supported me yeah. But the one place I found like comfort and people who I was sure would understand me was in books. Yep. Oh, I so resonate with what you are saying. The whole thing. Just substitute saxophone for double bass. 
<laughs> that's me. Saxophone fits so much better in a car. But yeah, so I, and so I spent my entire, from the time I realized that I wouldn't get in trouble if the reason I wasn't paying attention was because I was reading a book, Mm -hmm. I read books. And eventually, one of the reasons I I love your podcast is because the first sort of grown-up series of books I read was The Belgariad. Yeah. And it's my mom gave me Pawn of Prophecy because she was tired of taking me to the library, the bookstore for kid books. Yep. And we read that series together. So, and eventually yeah. I caught up to her and we had to wait for the last two books. And then I learned the excruciatingness of waiting for a book to come out. Oh my God. Yeah. I was right there with you. When's it coming out? Year to year to year for the Malorian? when the Malorian was coming out. And I can remember having to wait for Cirrus of Kel. And when it came out, we snatched, snatched it in hardcover as soon as it came out because yes. we had to read it. Um, <laughs> but we did that that um, that tag your it kind of thing. Like if someone mm-hmm. put the book down, someone else is going to pick it up. So you just sort of took it off to your, <laughs> you know, inhaled the whole story. Yes. Oh, that's very cool. And so, yeah, and like I said, she gave me that book because she was just so tired of constantly, of my constant need for new books to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then those books have kind of become my comfort food reading. Yeah. So it's kind of been, like, I was doing really well reading the chapter that went with the episode. Oh, did you actually do that? I did. (laughs) Until, like, COVID hit, and then I just dove straight through because I just, I needed. I tell you though, it's really, uh, I'm finding it a fascinating experience forcing, like just reading the one chapter for the yeah. show. And and this, like things that I haven't noticed before. I've read these books for 30 freaking years and just little, just little things that, oh my God, I've never noticed that before. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. So anyway, so I'm loving it so much. So so you've been a reader from young. Oh, yeah. And that was like your safe space. That's the place you went to because that world made sense. Those worlds made sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what story does for us. And, and I mean, I, I think, like I teach a lot of um, esoteric stuff and perspective stuff and you know shifting the way that we perceive the world around us and the filters that we look through and that kind of that kind of thing so if we think about our your life if you think about your life like that what makes this in quotation marks reality any different to any of the other realities that you would take yourself to via the pages of a book Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think the thing that makes books, I've always found comforting in books, is there's, you know, the direction. And especially if, hmm, there are some books that you read and they just surprise you. They go in a completely different direction than you expect. But a lot of times there are those narrative archetypes that mm-hmm. you can find in your life, but usually only when you stop and turn around and look back, uh-huh. it's hard to see them happening when it's in process. Mm-hmm. It's, but you, and like I said, is when you tell the story and go, ah, yes, that was this yeah. happening to me. I was in this part of the story arc. Yes. But it's harder to see, like, oh, right now I am in this. And in fiction, it's nice to be able to go, okay, I know where I am. And I know probably what's going to happen. Yeah. And Um, I guess when we're reading books, we naturally take that position of observer Whereas when it's the story of our own life, we are the ones that we would observe. Were we in that position of observer? Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think, 
like I said, I think it's hard to get distance in the, enough yeah. distance to see. Yes, yeah, one of those things you really, you really have to do deliberately. You know, part of mindfulness practice or some kind of like relaxation, decompression mm -hmm. practice that should be part of your life, listeners. Really, you should do that. You should do that. You should do that more. <laughs> should I'm, I just should on you? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know I should on myself all the time. And yesterday was for us a profound failure of mindfulness on most of the household. Oh, beautiful, part. beautiful. I'm sorry. That gets no, me so excited. It was, it was such an adventure. It was a, uh, it was, uh, distance learning has been, mm. Thing. Oh my it's god, the expression the expression on Jessica's face right now is like everything's clenched, everything. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Yesterday. Yeah. In uh, dear listeners, if you're shopping for a house, open floor plans suck. Don't believe HGTV. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you poor thing. So it's, right it's proving hard, is it? It is, and some of it's just balancing everybody's, because everybody's home, and my seven-year-old right now, I'm in his bedroom. Yeah. Um, oh, no, there's no superhero paraphernalia in the background, just his kindergarten fly-up wings. Um, no, no, what's the age range? So this... My son is seven, he'll be eight next month, and my daughter is ten. Right, and yes. It's not too bad. It's not terrible, and their gap, they, they get along beautifully. Yeah. They, it's just a question of our house is not well laid out for distance learning. Yeah, it's hard to share space when everything's kind of open. And, like, I'm in my son's room right now because my office is in our dining room. Yeah. Where basically everybody's having breakfast, so... <laughs> So I set myself up here, except I think my husband might be starting a meeting in the next room. Uh -huh. So any weird masculine voices in the background. That's, that's okay. Him. And, you know, ch ch children interrupting because suddenly dad's doing something else and mum's doing something else. And what are the mum and dad doing? And because that'll be more interesting than doing anything else. Indeed. okay. <laughs> Maxwell has bombed so many of my zoom meetings it's do you think he's enjoying it <laughs> oh I know he is and because he'll come up right beside me and he'll wave and he'll smile and I'm usually wearing my big headphones because otherwise yeah. the like noise is just what mm -hmm. it is but everybody waves at him and mm -hmm. yep. one of the volunteers I work with offered to give him all of his like childhood batman memorabilia oh my god <laughs> and i was like no really we've got plenty this is nerd house we're good thanks mike that was really <laughs> sweet <laughs> stop it stop being nice to my children <laughs> i love that they're being nice i just don't want more stuff in my house i know i know and that's sort of his entry into this world of yeah. story and fantasy yeah because like he, he lives in batman right yeah. now okay I can trick him into doing schoolwork by explaining to him Bruce Wayne became Batman by studying. And look, that's like, that's how metaphor and story works. That's how we navigate our life. It is. Like, and I, I, I've told the last two people in the last two conversations that I've had my own theory of magical realism because I know that there's a particular definition of magical realism that exists in literature it's supposed to be a certain thing and my opinion is that every single story holds elements of magical realism and you're welcome to come fight me on that <laughs> i have no interest in fighting i think that's brilliant um because i think i mean it's i think it was um Oh, I'm trying to remember who it was, but I know I've read it in Adrienne Marie Brown's work that science fiction, that any act of envisioning like revolution or social change is an act of science fiction writing. Mm -hmm. And I would say, 
I would actually probably say it's more like fantasy writing, mm -hmm. but she's drawing really heavily on the works of Octavia Butler. So science fiction is kind of the headspace she's working from. But I think, I think that magical realism is anytime we imagine things different from how they are, that's what we're doing. Exactly. And in any moment that we, in any now moment, we imagine ourselves into the next one. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's just the, the, the process of walking through life, I think. And it's this constant manifesting of what mm -hmm. should come next or what will come next. What you desire to come next and, and desire in the, in the um, context of what you're imagining, not necessarily a good thing that you hope for, desire in that the thing that you think you're going to step into you're going to step into mm -hmm. and that's a tremendous act of faith and right? power yes because moving from one moment to that I always feel like because I have I have experienced really terrible really dark depression and that's when you're stuck in this one unending moment of yeah. where you can't make that next moment happen yeah that that creative force seems to leave just yes. it's it's in a in some sort of really deep coma it's not able to function yeah so that's did you were you able to read when you were really depressed when i am really depressed i can't i can and I especially can't read long form things. I can maybe read a news story. I can maybe do that. But when I am really depressed and I use present tense because my experience of this life is that it will come back, but I will recognize it and I will mm -hmm. do the self-care things to bring myself back. Mm -hmm. Not because I am in a depressive episode right now. Mm -hmm. Understand but I can't hold the concentration long enough to read, especially long fiction, and especially to hold the counterfactuals in my head to read fiction. And usually when I can start reading again is when I'm starting to come out. Interesting. What do you tend to go for uh, when you're recovering, when you're coming out? So the last major depression I went through, I read a lot of Teenage Girl Saves the World fiction. Yeah. I read The Hunger Games. I read the Divergent series. Yeah. Um, because the language wasn't hard. Yeah. And because the world got saved. Yeah. Like it didn't occur to me at the time, but that somebody... And I think, I don't know, I think I'm finally coming into my own and owning myself as a woman in my 40s. Yeah. But I think before that, I still had this image of my 17-year-old self in my head. I so totally hear what you're saying. Yep. Um, so it was like somebody I could relate to yep. knew what to do. Yep. Maybe went through a dark patch, but yep. came out on the other side. Oh, extraordinarily powerful that that kind of healing of self well I think it's a kind of sympathetic magic in some ways it absolutely like... is it absolutely is so oh, thank you I love this okay <laughs> but yeah so that's just that's you know one of the ways I've pulled through mm -hmm. and Okay, so do you uh, read a lot or are you uh, go back to what I loved and read that again kind of person? Yes. Me too. I read and I, I never thought I'd like having a Kindle until I had tiny children. Uh-huh. And because and my seven-year-old still really wants to have someone sit next to him while he falls asleep. Yeah. He doesn't need to be actively like hugged and cuddled like he did when he was really little but he still really wants me to sit next to him and just be a big warm lump. And I get it. Yeah, my kids wanted that like into the teens. Yeah, 
My daughter, she, her preference, Mary Catherine, has started sleeping. There's a futon in Max's room in addition to his bed, and she sleeps on that. Mm -hmm. she doesn't want to be in a room by herself. So mm -hmm. I, and I get it. My husband occasionally has to work overnights and I feel completely out of sorts when the bed is empty. Yeah. So I wound up getting a Kindle and while he falls asleep, I read. Yep. So I've got this guaranteed half hour of reading time every night and I carve out, or I try to, it's harder now that no one leaves the house and everybody yep. needs uh -huh. distance learning tech support. Mm -hmm. But... <laughs> Moms are awesome. I logged five miles off my feet on Wednesday. In the house. In the house, just up and down the stairs and back and forth. And nice. <laughs> <laughs> but. Yeah, so deep. So you have a large library? Yeah, yeah, I, we have, so, and I am a reader. Yeah. Who married a reader. Oh, wonderful. I said it all. I love it. First time I ever went to my husband when we met, he had a house um, because he's been a responsible grown up since he was about 10. Um, <laughs> and I think has always seen himself as the 50 year old man he is now. Yeah. Um, but he had one of the first things that really made him attractive to me was that he had this huge, like, bunch of bookcases full of books and full of authors I recognized and series I'd read and we don't agree on the same books but for the first couple of years of our relationship we were constantly trading books yeah or sharing books yeah and that was damn sexy um I was just about to say romantic and sexy as hell yeah <laughs> oh it's just I think that the more I read well naturally the bigger my world is the bigger my world view the more inclusive and expansive and like weird and wonderful and yeah possible anything becomes possible yeah i always feel like if i've accepted aliens accepting every other possible difference why not absolutely why not and and who's to know so yeah. not me i don't know and in my reading i've accepted aliens of all brands and mm -hmm. you know elves and druids and dryads and yeah you know there's yeah. a sci-fi series with a race of spiders <laughs> I don't remember what the series is but cool and you know that that right there takes me into this whole other conversation about consciousness between species and um forms of life and the well I could get really controversial and <laughs> shake some cages but like a, a, a constant thread that runs through vegan uh uh what's the word pissiness pissiness you know their indignation about people not you know considering you know meat is murder and all of that sort of stuff and my response is have you connected with the consciousness of your carrot lately because it's got one yeah. and the plants and the trees it's not about anything being taboo or wrong it's about how you connect with the world that you are immediately plugged into how do you do that and then you come back and tell me that what I do is wrong yeah I feel like if I connected with the or if I hmm I thought I don't know the best way to say this and my universal prayer before eating is to thank the world for the nourishment it has given me. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I, um, I think it's from a Barbara Kingsolver, um, from her book about the year where they fed themselves off their like 40 acres and whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, but she talks about how she really thought about the consciousness of the carrots and the broccoli. And yeah. stuff. She wouldn't eat, you know, she'd try and subsist off air and water like a toddler. And 
I think there, I think that's, there's a point there, but I think the other point is to say, yes, everything belongs, everything is connected. Mm -hmm. So let's respect it all and not. Don't don't come at me and give me the, we are all one lecture because I teach that shit. So don't think you can. But in your we are all one lecture, who are you excluding because you don't agree with them? Mm -hmm. And that's across the board. Because if we are all one, we are all one. And that excludes nothing. Yeah. And so I'm I'm not about to go and defend, you know, cruelty and that kind of thing. I'll never go out and fight for that. But what I will stand up for is personal awareness and responsibility and accountability for how I walk through the world doing the best that I can every day. I get in a lot of trouble with folks for having empathy for the wrong people. (laughs) Wrong people, according to whom? It it really varies on context, but like I always have a little bit of empathy for the villains in stories and being in a lot of... hate to use this word sarcastically because I love the concept but woke people well um, you don't have to use that consciously uh, uh, sarcastically that's just or people who, yeah or who see themselves as like social justice cause bearers and, yeah um that I will have empathy for the people on the other side for the people yeah who are trying to dehumanize us for the people who are, I was at a protest a couple of years ago because the Nashville police were very clearly racial, racially profiling um, Latino and Hispanic drivers mm-hmm. and pulling them over for a traffic violation everybody at this intersection makes. Mm-hmm. And basically to put them in contact with the court system, to put them in contact with immigration authorities. Yeah. And I am as white as they come. Mm-hmm. I you can't look at me and assume my ancestors came from anywhere but Northern Europe. Um, With you. And I've got people screaming out of trucks at me and a group of similarly white people standing on the side of the road with, pro, with, with signs um, to go home. And I, had to, I was like, you know what? I was like, well, I mean, do you want me to go back to my house or do I have to go back to Poland? I just need to know. Um. And, and that, I mean, okay, so let's just take that little snapshot for a minute and talk about realities. You know, what, what that person was seeing is a reality that you're never going to experience mm-hmm. and it's never going to make sense to you. But it was totally real for them. And I can assume that that was coming out of a place of fear. For it always any any conflict any conflict at all I don't care what it is any conflict externally or felt internally comes from fear of something and so I couldn't be angry in that moment because somebody was scared and they yeah. were acting it out in a way they'd been taught to act it out we are only <laughs> the way we are because that's the only way we can be coming you know, the life we've lived, the days that we have existed, have formed us into what we are. We can't be any other way than what we are. And whatever way we show up now is the only way we can show up now and it's the best that we can do. And even if it's judged by someone as worse than yesterday or better than yesterday, it's still the best that we can do right now in this moment. Mm-hmm. No matter what. Yeah. And that's where I get in trouble, having empathy for people who are... (laughs) It all connects, right? Because I see that person as part of the same, like, fabric of existence that I get to be Mm -hmm. a piece of. Yep. And if I make them an enemy, I'm just just breaking the mirror. Like, Mm -hmm. it's... Do you think that being, like, reading the way that we do... Or the way reading the way that you do, spending time in different kinds of stories, maybe stories that you don't like, maybe stories that make you feel a bit uncomfortable, like in those pages. Does that equip you for like 
the way that you move through the world it must I'm sure but what's your thoughts on that I think it does and I think I mean number one I think it equips me to inhabit characters that I might find repulsive or I might find off-putting and so it puts me in a position to rather than immediately be angry and defensive and frightened myself to be curious yeah oh yes curiosity is so powerful that's a lifetime of work right it's hard to be curious when people are spitting on you yes but it makes it that much easier just a little tiny bit easier to take a breath and go what's going on here who is this why do they feel this way why are they um why is this happening in the way it's happening and why Mm -hmm. why is this why is this happening in this way and usually there is like if i can get curious about it Mm -hmm. there is something um yes absolutely and that's not to say that you need to put yourself in situations where you stand in the spit and let it drip down you constantly no no you can go away and have a think about that (laughs) but then I also I also contemplate that the consciousness shift possible beyond that beyond that curiosity is just uh I don't quite know what the word is yet allowing allowing denotes some sort of authority it's not that just witnessing maybe yeah without judgment at all sort of that witness consciousness yeah yeah that we were talking about before that kind of that step removed but but to me not like a, a removed from like distanced from but so completely immersed in and one with that you kind of like the overarching everything oh god does that even make sense I think so it's sort of accessing that flow of and I'm coming into a season where I make a lot of water analogies yeah but it's it's being able to step in that river and be a solid point in it yeah but feel the entirety of it as it moves by yeah or move with it, or I don't know. This is an incomplete metaphor at best. No, no, but it's so, like, it's so, I just find these ways of talking about our existence so interesting. The metaphors we use, the images that we build to understand ourselves, you know, and the world around us. My first career was talking and writing and teaching about music. Yep. So... I think automatically a metaphor because you can't talk about music in ways that make sense to people (laughs) without metaphor. And I think there's so many things in life that yes, I can explain to you how to make coffee without ever once going into metaphor. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe briefly to tell you how finely or not finely to grind it, but, (laughs) but for most things, metaphor is the only way metaphor and story Mm -hmm. because in a story. Yeah, sure. I've read, you know, I've read Garion's story from birth to age 30 in the course of a week or two. Yeah. And that's a great way to condense a story into a short little chunk. But (sighs) metaphor is the way we do that to our lives, right? Because we're able to tell our stories by comparing it to things that condense the time frame and that give us a frame to see it in. Exactly, because we are, as humans, not capable of, I don't think we're truly capable of existing in this now moment. You know, we we need to create time in our lives to, to slow things down so that we have, so that we can look at them and, well, here we go, Sandra being profound again, you know, and judge whether it was right or wrong. Or, mm-hmm. you know, okay, looking back there, how does that inform my the thing I'll do next week? We're not constitutionally built to, historically, to exist yeah. right here now and just live here now and move from this moment into the next one, you know, like imagine just in ourselves into yeah. the, and just stay in we, that flow. 
drop into that flow sometimes, but I think, I always think trying to drop into that flow is counterproductive. Trying, I say, (laughs) there's no trying. We're going to try, we're going to try really hard. You just do it or you don't. (laughs) Yeah. And then when you notice it's happening, it kind of, I don't know, I've had these moments in my life where it's been these beautiful, liminal, transcendent moments. Yes. As soon as I notice that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. That's when I lose the grip on the transcendence. Well, that's why people meditate. They are, uh, they're chasing that, that sensation. They're chasing that, you know, the edgelessness, the dissolving into everything. Yeah. Um, and that's great. What if, what if we just were here now without judging whether it was right or wrong? Isn't that kind of the same thing? Like that's, that's what we're all aiming for, but it feels really scary. So we don't. Yeah. Well, and I think we're in a culture that tells us, you know, we have to plan for things. And I'm a project manager, like in another life. So like, yeah, to the nth degree. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I mean, basically what I do now is I help people plan ministry projects. Right. And yeah how to build a community it's it's saying these are the steps we've got to take it's, yeah this is the vision and look yeah. it's totally that is like we we it's great to have these esoteric conversations and yes it helps us to I don't know be more gentle with ourselves as we move through all of the things we have to do but we still need to use the tools of this physical world to navigate it and to make ourselves understood by other people. Mm-hmm. Um, We're bound in these squishy separate bodies and we have to work with that. Okay. Like as much as I would like to be pure brain energy and well, sometimes <laughs> there are things that are really great about having a body, but uh-huh. there are also times where I'd like to just be this pure consciousness and not worry about, but you can. No, we don't have a choice in that. We're stuck. No. I'm stuck in this body that has an, or not stuck. Stuck's a bad word. But, but it's not exactly what I mean. It is the experience. It is the container for this yes. experience. Yes. And I am, I am all for embodiment, like feel the things, really go into the sensations. I think maybe where people get stuck is that, they don't really go into the sensations because the sensations feel like they're too much. But yeah. I will confess to, to, to that, to having tried to become disembodied or having pulled out of embodiment because the sensations were too much or too, too uncomfortable or too mm-hmm. hard. There, there is joy and pure spirituality and connection in all of those really embodied places like you go in deeply enough and you are you have that same experience Mm -hmm. of of losing the edges you know in this lovely holographic universe that we live in you know the the (laughs) as you know it's almost like you get this toroidal turning inside out of one if we go in deeply enough we come back out and feed back into ourselves thought ron doss said a thing that has always guided my like work in the world Mm -hmm. which is um i'm gonna try and get it right i will probably get it horribly wrong and that's okay Um, but it's something to the effect of the work i do on myself is an offering to other beings and the work i do for other beings is an offering to myself yes oh goosebumps and one of the ways I've pulled out of depressive episodes is through acts of service yeah and through getting out of my own messy thoughts and into feeding people or just yes Yes. showing up like yes we give a gift and in the giving it's ours yeah and then that work becomes it, it it builds energy it does. It, just... it absolutely does. Oh, my philosopher. 
The philo- my philosophy, my philosopher partner, like this is a conversation that we need to have more of. I think we need to talk more about about what experience what experience is like. Like I think we need to have more of these meta conversations because yeah. I think, and I think this is one of those places where story can help us because Absolutely. we can have these conversations about people yeah. from stories. We can have these conversations about our experience of story. Yeah, and, and the the. Hmm. So the spaces that I create are virtual these days because I live in the Netherlands and, well, not just that, but... To say the spaces I create for people who live, you know, three miles from me are virtual these days, so I get it. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. And so so these sacred spaces that we need, like this space between you and I right now, where we can explore and get curious and throw around ideas that might not sound elegant when they first come out of our mouths, but it's there then hanging in front of us and we can like look at it a bit more and turn from, turn it from side to side and not be wrong or not, and not be right. Just not to not be afraid or to be encouraged to not be afraid. Yeah. I was in graduate school for a really long time. So every time I open my mouth, I'm afraid I've said something wrong. Yeah. Or something that someone's going to pounce on. Yeah. And it has been incredibly freeing to find myself in spaces like this, in yeah. spaces like the ones I try and build, yes. where that's not what it's like. So where it's important. not the lion pit at the view zoo and every idea is yes. a stake that's been thrown. Exactly. And th- that's... That's what I'm all about. Oh, Jessica, thank you so much. Yes. Way I would like to do Prophecy Speaks with you. around somewhere can be anything Um, let me see if i have something that isn't captain underpants it's totally okay if it's captain underpants you know what let's give that a shot yeah please it can be anything seriously listeners you can pick up anything that's nearby ask a question hold it in front of you and just see what it tells you see what the universe is offering you okay so do you have a question or something that you would like to? I would like to figure out how I can make more grace and space for, yeah, just space for us to give each other grace in the house and create more peace. Okay. And I'm using Captain Underpants and the tri- ty- ah, Tyrannical Retaliation of the Turbo Toilet 2000. George and Harold ran back through town as fast as they could. Soon they were scrambling up the steps of Jerome Horowitz Elementary School. This feels weird, said George. I've never been so happy to go to school before. Or to take tests, said Harold. And indeed, it was a happy school day for George and Harold. They took all their tests, did pretty well on most of them, and never had to deal with anything super or secret again. What's coming up? I think that we get second chances because that's this point in the story. They're getting a second chance because they used a time machine, but, um, and that every day is a new start and a new chance to do a little bit better and to be kinder to each other or to do things to do things a little bit better, maybe. And not just every day. Every moment. Every moment. And not just better, but different. How's that? Wow. I really didn't expect that from... <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> From the first book that happened to be at hand. Yes. Because every space in our house is books, basically. Mm-hmm. You okay? I am. All right. Do you have anywhere that you would like to point people, suggest they have a look at or go to? Not right now. I don't have any. I mean, you can follow me at Twitter at Jess and Flux, but that's about that's about the limits of my social media presence right now. That's okay. It doesn't have to be in particular, yep. but anything that you are interested in right now or listening to or watching or reading. Oh, golly. Um, the goofiest thing I'm watching, but is incredibly soothing, is this British series called Time Team. Okay. It is a team of plucky archaeologists who go around the British Isles, mostly mostly Great Britain, but they spend a lot of time in Wales and Scotland, basically digging holes in people's backyards because they've found stuff or because there's a local legend of a castle or a Roman fort or <gasps> stuff like that. Sometimes there's like a formal archaeological need for it. Uh-huh. Like there's something known on the site and they dig holes and they tell you all this cool facts, but sometimes they don't find anything. I like it. And sometimes they do. Okay. So there'll be, I'll find some kind of link or some information and put it in the show notes. <laughs> like it's on Amazon prime. Okay. I just, I think because there's no drama and there's no like, like they don't get upset. I mean, they get maybe a little bit annoyed when they don't find things. Mm-hmm but they still made the episode. They still showed you that they dug in a field and found two pieces of pot and nothing else. I love this show. This is re- this is magical reality at its finest. And it's like, it's like I said, it's incredibly soothing and it just makes uh, me happy. That is recommendation enough, really. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Jessica, for coming thank on the you. show. All right, so we will be back with the with Belgarit and beyond in next week as you listen to this Alicia and I will be back we're heading into the Vale of Aldur with the gang so time for some Garian magic (laughs) (laughs) all right everyone see you later all right thank you so much yeah this was fun